questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. There is a secret world that lurks beyond the superficial veneer of American civilization. The Montauk Project attempted to study why and how human beings, when exposed to high-powered electromagnetic waves, suffered mental disorientation, physical dissolution, or even death. A further ramification of this phenomena is that such electromagnetic waves rescrambled components of the material universe itself. According to reports, this research not only included successful attempts to manipulate matter and energy, but also time itself. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And if you're new to the Veritas family, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, just click on the subscribe button. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and much more. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is Peter Moon, who is primarily known for his investigation of space-time projects. These concern projects in the past, present, and future that control both time and perception of time. This began in 1990 when Peter met scientist Preston Nichols, one of the world's foremost experts in the world on electromagnetic phenomena, who had been involved in strange experiments at the Montauk Air Force Station on Long Island, which included the manipulation of time. Their collaboration in writing, The Montauk Project, Experiments in Time, and its subsequent sequels have now reached legendary proportions. Peter has recently released a new series of videos titled Time Travel Theory Explained, which explains in simple language the actual scientific principles demonstrating that time travel is within the boundaries of ordinary mathematics and physics. His websites are timetraveleducationcenter.com and for his books, skybooksusa.com. Peter Moon joins us directly from Westbury, New York. Hello, Peter, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's nice to be with you. You've, your name has been brought to my attention for many, many years. And let me just begin by saying that I did not know that Preston Nichols had passed away last year. I wanted to ask you a few questions about him and, you know, rest in peace. Hopefully we can actually talk about more of things that you were never able to discuss before. But first of all, tell the audience who may not know who you are, how you came into the time travel world and Montauk Project. Well, I was, uh, at the time I discovered the Montauk Project, I had an advertising and de design firm with my uh, ex-wife. And I was um, interested in getting the brochure work for this device called the Baytar. And I had been on the Baytar. Uh, that, that was why in, in New York City, I had been put on this machine that was a sound system with a uh, these glasses you put on that are biofeedback. And after being on there, I, I drove home on the train, which was usually kind of a stressful experience to get on the train. I, I, you know, the previous year I'd been going in and out every day on the train. And it was when you get off the train, you're kind of stressed out from to New York city to long Island. And I just, uh, 
I had no stress after doing this, after getting off the train. I said, this is a neat device. Uh, I met some, I, I saw some friends and I was talking about it because one of them had introduced me to the chiropractor who had this device in his office in New York City. And, and she said, and it, um, her friend said, oh, you've got to see Preston Nichols. He has a machine that's much less expensive and it's a better machine. And uh, he's an inventor. And he needs help with marketing. And I thought, well, maybe I can help Preston. So he said, if you want to see him, they said, you go to Long Island Psychotronics. And it's a would meet every, uh, I think, every two Wednesdays out of the month. So I went to a psychotronics meeting. I saw Preston, met him briefly. And it's quite an existential experience meeting him because I could tell that he was not in his body. It was a, a very strange, uh, you know, just when you meet him. And he says, "You, we can talk, but you're going to have to wait till the break. I'm just about to give a lecture in there. Uh, so you're going to have to wait for the break to talk to me. And I went in and there was a panel of people speaking on earth changes. He was one of the people, as was Duncan Cameron. Uh, Al Bielik, who was a part of all of this research, was sitting next to me. I didn't know who he was, but he would chime in during the lecture. So they talked as the, they talked about earth changes. They kept talking about the Philadelphia experiment and the fact that Al and Duncan had been aboard the ship. And then they started talking about the Montauk project and it just went on and on. And I, and I said, is there a book about this? They said, no. And so after the meeting, I got to talk to Preston uh, at the break. And that really was a, a very bizarre interaction because it, it was really, he talked about some of the occult factors uh, that he'd been involved with between Montauk and the Philadelphia experiment. And that's what really kind of got me uh, going on one level. But I, I was able to go down about a week later and see his, uh, Space-time labs, they called it, which was in an extended – he had a huge garage in the back of his house, and that's what space-time labs – what he had all this radio equipment. So I went down there, got introduced to more of who and what he was, and I went to the meetings for about six months, uh, scoping this out, checking this out, because there was a lot of disturbing information about it, and um, I decided after six months that it would be okay to, to do a book with him. And we we signed a contract on April 1st, uh, 1991, and proceeded, and it took me about a year to uh, write and publish the book. So that's how I met him. Now, Preston Nichols, who in this world of ours, in alternative media, that name always, always comes along my, my radar. And some people say... You have to take what he says with a grain of salt because he was government and it could be disinformation. How do we, first of all, discern that what he said all these years was factual? Well, I, I wouldn't say everything he said was factual, um, but he was an expert in electromagnetic uh, phenomena. And, and he could hold his own with any engineer in this respect. And we're talking about real world physical scientists, science. He was also um, highly skilled in 
uh, I guess what you'd say, secret science. And he was quite knowledgeable. And of course, when you bridge, there, there's a level above. This is why they call physics. They have physics and metaphysics. Metaphysics is above physics. And it is a world that reaches into the quantum realm and has very strange phenomena connected with it. So, of course, Preston was trafficking with this daily, and it made him a strange character. And so it's like he wasn't necessarily the most balanced character in the world, but he was a genius. And you you have to become, you know, I, I think that the response is you have to, anybody, it doesn't matter who they are, you have to sift for the truth. You have to determine what is and what is not. And you just don't take anybody as gospel. That's that's silly. So he had great nuggets to share. And over time, as I have illustrated in the uh, 25-year silver anniversary edition of the Montauk Project, which was just released at the beginning of this year, um, all of the basic themes of the Montauk Project, what was being purported, not necessarily the specifics, but the general themes uh, have proven to be true. Uh, and these are delineated in the book, um, which we can go into and, and to, to some extent. And uh, so Preston was a character who was talking all about strange electromagnetic phenomena emanating out of Montauk that was affecting the minds of people, humanity. And it was a story that you, you, I couldn't find out enough about because it was just so, it was like peeling an onion. And it was all very weird. And at that time, there were a lot of people uh, that hung around psychotronics or space-time labs that had some vestigial trace, an identification with this project. In other words, there were a lot of people that talked about it that knew about it. Some of them were afraid of Preston. Some of them went to Preston for help because people would come to Preston for help. Uh, for example, there was one man who uh, was having strange phenomena come into his head. I remember he said he would see Einstein's face superimposed on the clouds and he would get so hypersensitive. And Preston basically told him, what you need to do is put a aluminum foil and put it all around your room, your bedroom. And this will shield you. Uh, so he did it and it worked. So he helped. Preston would help people like this that had weird experiences and they had nowhere else to go. So they ended up at his doorstep and he would quite often help them to a significant extent. And these people really loved him for that. Uh, and of course, some people don't have that weird phenomena going on. So, you know, it's kind of meaningless. So, you know, Preston was somebody that I, I took with a grain of salt, indeed. Um, and Duncan Cameron once said something about Preston. He says, you know, there's a characteristic in Preston. He'll say something and it'll be totally off the wall and you won't believe it. But over the long haul of time, it will show itself to be true. That was one thing he said about Preston. Um, for example, uh, he would do a lecture about um, sunspots and explosions on the sun. 
and that the Earth was ha uh, that scientists were having to protect us with the Heart Project from the rays of the sun. This was in the late '90s. A couple of years later, in the newspaper, you'd see something that basically said as much. It was a small mention, but it was there. So he was a very uh, he might embellish or elaborate upon his stories, but he was a genius. And as I said, you had to take him with a grain of salt. Now, let me just say that I've seen a lot of his talks and, and interviews and so on, and I'm always fascinated. And the question, I don't want you to think that I'm coming across as this skeptic. I'm an open-minded skeptic. And we cannot be, we have to be precedent to walk in his shoes. And if, if he was exposed to all these <laughs> underground projects, who are we to say that he's right or wrong. That is his own perspective. Yes. And I, I must say that I've had um, more problems with people accepting his stuff as gospel than I did with people criticizing him, you know, because people would, would swallow it too much uh, to the point where, you know, they're walking around in a conspiracy mindset, mm. which is not healthy. Sure. Definitely. I mean, conspiracies exist. They've always existed. Uh, but you can, it, it depends what you focus on. Was Ingo Swan related in some way with Preston's work? Yes. First off, um, Ingo Swan had some sort of a natural gift, and his gift um, blossomed when he did uh, the upper levels of Scientology in the 60s. And he, at that simultaneous to his involvement, with uh, what are called the OT levels or the operating Thetan levels of Scientology, he became involved with a remote viewing program with um, Pat Price. And I can't remember the other guy. He's the most famous of them all. I can't remember him. Pat Price was the best of the remote viewers and, and he was uh, killed apparently. But um, he was involved with the, the Stanford Research Institute, Ingo Swan was, And his claim to fame was that he had made a magnetometer move without touching it. This was like scientifically demonstrated. And he was gifted. So in 1972, Ingo in, in Prague, Czechoslovakia, it was the name of the country, now the Czech Republic, um, he founded uh, the Psychotronics Association. Um, And that, that word was coined. And it was psychotronics has to do with the interface between with electronics and the mind, body and spirit. It could be argued and I never saw it argued and I don't know that it should be that that whole concept derived out of Scientology from the early 1950s, because Ellen Hubbard used to talk about um, electronics being used to control spiritual beings. And this is going back into the early 50s. But um, anyway, Ingo Swan uh, was, it started Psychotronics in 1972. By the time the 80s rolled around, uh, Preston was would sometimes lecture at New York City uh, Psychotronics, but he was the uh, president of the local chapter on Long Island, which Uh, met in Farmingdale, Long Island, on the border of NASA and Suffolk counties. And so, so Ingo Swan was uh, tangentially involved in that respect. They were both involved with psychotronics, 
But he, Preston was quite a scientist in his day, and he had uh, once had a – he was playing with anti-gravity. He had an anti, uh, a laboratory in an industrial place, and Ingo Swan, under a different name, I forget the name, uh, I think his name was Ralph Benersky. It was a pseudonym he used, told him to shut it down, cite the anti-gravity project. And he also came and approached him and told him not to investigate Montauk. So it turned out Ingo had ties to secret societies above and beyond his connection with Scientology and with uh, the government. He was tied into occult secret societies as well, uh, something he wouldn't talk about. But uh, that's that's that on Ingo Swan. Didn't Preston keep distance between him and Ingo because of Ingo's involvement with the L. Ron Hubbard's uh, organization? No, it had nothing to do with L. Ron Hubbard. It's just that, that Ingo was, you know, I don't know that he was working for the government in the beginning. Uh, I mean, with, with the spirit of working for the government, but he kind of got into a very weird space, like where he was just a, uh, an, a, a mind control flunky, in my opinion. You know, he was gifted as, as, Many gifted people that I, I would refer to as a mind control flunky. In other words, they weren't doing the bidding of anything good, in, in my opinion. Well, let me rephrase. Actually, I, since I was reading your book before we we began, it's uh, actually Ingo who wanted to distance himself from his association with Scientology, but he was a dedicated Scientologist. He was very dedicated at one point. Uh, I used to read his letters to L. Ron Hubbard. And sometimes answer them for L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, but those those weren't really, there's nothing great revelation, revelatory in those things. Uh, he used to come to the center in uh, in Clearwater, Florida, where he was involved. But, uh, you know, the thing is, he was he was a public Scientologist. And public Scientologists were sort of not completely in the know, so to speak. Um, they were customers as opposed to uh, something a little more clued in. And, and, and of course, it became very vogue to distance yourself completely from Scientology. And uh, when, when all the ruckus has hit in the last, you know, 20 years. So you see people that were uh, devout Scientologists or really pushing it in the 70s say, oh, no, I had nothing to do with that. Oh, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, of course. Uh, what's her name? Uh, the actress from King of Queens. Uh, you know, she is not what I'm talking about. She's a t completely different example. Uh, yes, yes. She's not, she, she quit and she's a, a rabid. I mean, she, but she will not deny that she was involved in Scientology. You know, well, if you have John Travolta and Tom Cruise. Pardon me? To John, John Travolta, Tom Cruise, they're still very much involved, right? Yeah, I'm talking about people that were more on the edge of the movement. Right. Um. And it, in other words, just people will distance themselves from it. I'm not, I'm not talking about quitting and fighting it, uh, but just kind of pretending it didn't happen. Not, not to be continue, to, to continue talking about Scientology, but I remember somebody gave me the Dianetics book in 1984, which I read. And then they invited me to go to their, their offices. And I found it interesting that they plugged me into a computer. And then I disappeared from there because I didn't want any anything to do with organized religion at the time. But I've moved over 20 times around the world, and every single time 
They find me, they track me down, and they continue sending me stuff. So they have a great intelligence apparatus, Peter. Well, it, it's that's that's not really so much. It's like they get a name and they that's that's more of a computer system. Oh, I'm being facetious, but they have a good way of tracking people down, even though you don't give them the new addresses. It's it's very yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of stupid too. Yeah, because it doesn't really do them. It doesn't bring them any business. Now, aside from Preston Nichols, we'll also be mentioning another person that you've dealt with, Dr. David Anderson from the Time Travel Research Center, and I believe has a new name for the listeners because you know i've mentioned this name before back when we started this program in 2008 2009 i had interactions with them and i have a letter here a a quick email that i just found the other day and he closes by saying you're great to make a connection with you hopefully we'll talk soon in time uh, your friend in time uh dr anderson same thing with Al Bilek. We try to make a connection. We spoke on the phone, but he couldn't hear. His his health was not good at the time. He asked me if I could send him a, a telephone for hearing impaired. And when we almost did, he passed away. So some great people that we unfortunately did not get to interact. But I'm very curious to know about your interaction with Dr. Anderson because he appeared, he disappeared, and he reappeared again. Am I right? Yeah, he comes and he goes. And, and of course, um, it's, um, can you read the letter or is there anything to say? No, no, Did no. It was a short email. We make it, I don't know how he found, we started the program. A lot of people started getting in contact with me because they wanted to be on the program. People made a connection with him and th- through somebody else, we interacted shortly. And then subsequently he disappeared. Shortly after that time, for years, I just couldn't get a hold of him. Well, yes, he he comes and he goes. And as he he says, he will go dark. And when he says go dark, that means he's not on the grid. Um, I'm very fortunate that he even surfaced at all to the extent that he did. Uh, He will resurface now and then. Um, He did give me a hello when I was in Romania this last summer. I didn't really speak with him, but I heard him speak um, because he was doing a program with some of the the young kids there, and I was attending it. It was, but he was doing it via internet, internet radio. For the listeners, so, who who is Dr. David Anderson, and why did this appearances, in your opinion? Okay, well, I will just say how he came into my life, and it was um, August eleventh. The year was nineteen ninety nine. This was the day of a what was called a uh, full solar eclipse and a grand cross in the sky, which means that the there were planets opposing each other uh, in the sky, forming a, a cross. Which in astrology, on, on an eclipse and an acro- and a grand cross, this is like a major shift of something. It's a it's a it's a very loaded time now the august 11th date is also symbolic of the annual biorhythm which preston nichols had taught me about with the montauk project every august 12th which really meant in between august 10th and the 14th would be this huge biorhythm that you can only best compare it to like a meridian in the body in traditional chinese medicine where there is a certain flow that happens on the earth and it's tied to when the star Sirius is closest to the Earth. And 
this is the ancient Egyptians built their uh, pyramid with reference to Sirius shining into the queen's chamber. Um, and of course, they recognize this time of the year as high heat, fertility, when the, the delta, delta would flood and become fertile. And also it was a time of sexual heat and it was a time for magic in, in the name of sexual magic. Um, so that was, it had an identification in Europe. It's had an identification with dowsers. And on that particular day, uh, there were astrologers, occultists, metaphysics all over the world, very curious about the way this eclipse, the sh there's a shadow that accompanies the eclipse and it, it began right at Manitol. Manitol is a stone uh, quoit, they call it. It's a, it's like a big donut uh, adjacent to a big sort of phallic stone. And it was starting right there. And, and people were very interested because I had mentioned in my book, Montauk Revisited, that Aleister Crowley had done a ritual at Manitol on August 12, 1943, where he had uh, sent his son through a donut uh like a on a board and sent a what he called a line of rough water to montauk new york uh this was a and, and it's actually something that i have had independently verified uh by a, a man who was in who, who had known somebody who had been there by a couple of different sources um i can't prove it exists but i've had independent corroboration and of course um on that day is when I met Dr. David Anderson. He came into a meeting. Uh, our, we used to have a monthly Montauk night, and it was in Belmore, Long Island. And he just attended the lecture. And after the lecture, we pressed and talked the whole lecture. After the lecture, he introduced himself to me, told me he had a time travel research center. And I already knew who he was because he had subscribed to our news, our monthly news, our week quarterly newsletter, the Montauk Pulse, which has still been in print since 1993. And you can get it at the website, skybooksusa.com, where I update people on my various activities, including interactions with David Anderson. But David Anderson, uh, I didn't know if he was for real because his web is a stationary said time travel research center. And I said, well, this looks like a high school kid who's very interested in time travel and trying to get attention. Well, after talking to him for five minutes, I could see that he was very genuine and for real. He told me that at that time, he had a laboratory where he could slow time down and speed it up in, at about the size, in a self-contained field about the size of a soccer ball. And just the way he talked and the way he talked to the group, I said, this is neat. Uh, he invited me to go to lunch with him following week and we did and we became friends and he shortly put up my first website and uh and even though we were friends and we interacted he was very still very mysterious um as interesting as all this was i when i first mentioned him i put it on page three of my newsletter that's about how important he was to me he was worthy of page three uh you know he would become a headline name, you know, years later as he would develop and he became very interesting. Uh, but so he was in my life. And I guess the first thing he wanted to do when he met me 
we sat outside of my house in my driveway for about 45 minutes after lunch. And he says, I'd really like to get you to Romania. There's some people there I think you'd like to meet. Uh, I think it'd really be good if you go there. And that was 99. It wasn't until 2008 that I actually made it to Romania. And he paid for my way to Romania. Why did it take and, so long? What? Why did it take so long before after he made the offer? Well, first off, there was a question of the, the first it was just a good idea. I think a couple years later he invited me, but it was sort of like uh you know, I didn't know what the invitation meant. It wasn't like when when he finally invited me was after he'd been out of my life for four years and mm. been very absent. He gave me a full invitation to come with a full expenses paid trip. You see, he paid my way the first right. time. Yep. And I and also I was warned against going by one of my good friends who happened to work as a psychic, but that was I didn't employ her as a psychic. She was just my friend and she insisted I don't go. Um you know, she said it was dangerous. For your safety, right? I don't know if it was dangerous, but uh, um so I didn't I didn't push it. I didn't push it for that reason. And um obviously it wasn't time to go. And there was a lot that happened in between because what had happened was my first book, The Montauk Project, had been published in Romanian. And then when that book was published in Romania, it was uh the the publisher who built his whole publishing house based upon that book uh received an inquiry from somebody in the secret government of Romanian intelligence called Department Zero. And he asked if he would be interested in publishing his book. That is a book that uh, was sent to me. It took me four years to get around to reading it, at which point I did. It's now published in Skybooks called Transylvanian Sunrise. And that book uh, goes all into uh, a secret chamber that was discovered beneath the Romanian Sphinx. So when I had read that book, and contract right after I contracted to to publish it, I heard from David Anderson, and he says, "How would you like to come to Romania? I'll pay your way and for somebody else." So that was like I thought it was all fitting together because uh, I thought he was more connected to that than he perhaps he is. I still don't know. Uh, I thought there was a big connection between the two. Usually, and you think it. when somebody—I don't mean to interrupt you—but usually, when somebody says, "I'm going to pay," you know take care of all your expenses. There might be a quid pro quo involved. What was his interest in you going there? That's a very interesting question, but um, it's uh, there is something much deeper involved in me going there. He was the facilitator, as I, and it unfolds over the years. But at that time, I was not the only one who was paid to go there. There was... When we had the, it, the, this is a camp called Atlanticron, which is a gathering of artists, writers, and scientists who teach to Romanian youth, age 16 to 30. And for example, sometimes I'd be sitting there at dinner and I'd be surrounded by six other New Yorkers. Um, there were people from New York who's, you know, who had been paid to come. There were people paid to come from Germany, from, uh, I don't know, maybe Thailand was the next year, but but people from all over the world, uh, mostly Europe, Germany, 
uh, were paid to come visit Atlanticron and speak. So I was one of many. The following year, with the, there was an economic debacle, uh, and there was no more funding. So I was now going back and being one of the very few Americans or people from any other country. I was mostly with Romanians from that time on when I would visit the camp. And I would go back pretty much every year. Um, David was only there the first two years. But he kind of like – so in other words, the only quid pro quo was to teach. And he wanted to just have – he thought I'd be a very interesting addition to Atlanticron. Uh and certainly he was right because I've been going back there and it's become a uh, a home away from home for me. And it's it's served as a foundation for all of my adventures in Romania, which have been kind of extensive. I find it interesting that, not to sound redundant, but Romania has so many interesting aspects to the country and its people. And it's almost as if That information is not too prevalent in the West. Do you find that to be true? Well, yes. And of course, I've been educated over a period of years. Um, and sometimes education happens slow. But one of the things you learn is that Romanians are very intelligent. And and they, they'll explain it to me. At least, you know, some of the top scientists will. They say, listen, Romania, while the Western Europe was developing French bread and French cuisine and other, you know, accoutrements of modern society. The Romanians, as a people, were fighting off hordes from the East, you know, fighting off Mongols, fighting off whatever. And their minds, their, uh, what you would call their frontal lobe, didn't develop to the point where you have people in the West developing accounting and all of this cerebral stuff. And what happens is, and I know, and I've learned this independently from my Qigong training, is the frontal lobe becomes too heavy, too preoccupied. And this is what you have developing. The epitome of that is like sort of a nerd mindset, where the nerd cannot do anything too physical, and he's disconnected from his primordial life and he's just all in the brain to the detriment of his life experience even to the point where he doesn't care and he just becomes sort of a cerebral ineffective like it's you know sometimes i see people complain about scientists that are too cerebral because they can't do anything not a good survivalist in the wilderness basically exactly so the the romanians did not they they weren't developing their cerebral aspects at the same rate And they never lost their primordial aspects and their primordial. So in other words, their brain, I mean, they're not, you know, it, it's not really a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of not having their frontal lobes polluted with, uh, you know, McDonald's, Burger King and, and you know, Western <laughs> culture, including right. French bread uh, or whatever, French cuisine. You know, where you're thinking your people are like developing cuisine to the nth degree. And that's all fine. But something gets lost. And I think the epitome of what you see with, with French cuisine and that sort of mentality is the whole Marie Antoinette, Antoinette syndrome. Let them eat cake and, and the, the people overthrow you because you're, you know, you're so arrogant and developed and 
you know, she was Austrian, but it's the same culture uh, in, in a sense of developed culture. You know, you, you lose touch with the, the, the common things. And so consequently, the Romanians uh, have some of the top jobs and they're very influential all over the world because of their ability with mathematics and programming. David said that they had the best mathematicians in the world and he hired them. He fell in love with the country because he could hire them because they were good and they weren't expensive either because of the economy in Romania. So that's, that's, I, I learned, that's one of the first things I learned. I was also taught directly by David that Romania is a bridge between the East and the West. It has always been a bridge between the East and the West. And when I mentioned that to him a year or two later, he was very impressed by the fact that I remembered that. And it's, it's, it will serve as a interlocutor between the two hemispheres, so to speak, um, east and west. And it's it's a very interesting place. Um, things have developed in Romania that there's there's sciences that have been developed there that the world doesn't even know about, and that not even most of Romania knows about because they just fall into obscurity. Um, but that's a little bit about Romania. Do you, you mentioned something about, and I've heard you say this in other interviews, the Sphinx in Romania and this apparatus or, or machine where we can see a, a hologram of the create, of the, the history of Earth. Can you explain? Well, the book Transylvania Sunrise um, is all about the discovery of a chamber beneath the, the, a Sphinx in Romania which is a rock formation that from one angle looks like a carved sphinx. From the other side, it looks like a griffin or a lion. And in the, it was discovered with the, the Pentagon, who had a certain type of ground-penetrating radar that was operating from satellites, that they discovered there was an area that didn't make sense underneath that area. And it was an area that they couldn't get a, a proper, I guess, underground readout of. And it became a great curiosity, what was there. So there was an overture made by an Italian Freemason who was, who had his connections in the Pentagon through, through Freemasonry to facilitate the opening of this through Department Zero. Uh, the whole story of how Department Zero came into being is covered in that book. And Department Zero, because uh, it started under the dictator, uh, Ceausescu, who uh, there were, were they called K events. You know, people might think of them as X-file events, where weird stuff would happen and would go to a certain part of the government. And they would investigate and deal with it. But it was always kind of hush hush. And this Department Zero continued from communist Romania into capitalist Romania. And they, the Romanians had gotten a, a doctor from Red China to um, organize their paranormal department. Dr. Zien, he was called. And in exchange, the Romanians who had very good education would teach Chinese. So there was a, an exchange program, and Dr. Zen uh, basically, uh, they were, they were, Department Zero was supposed to monitor any unusual births. 
So there was an unusual birth from a man known as Caesar, Cesar, Caesar Brad. And he had a huge umbilical cord they couldn't cut. So he was reported to Department Zero. He come un- under the observation of Dr. Zen, and he was eventually groomed to become a part of Department Zero, where he would eventually become the head of Department Zero, and he would facilitate the opening of this chamber, um, working with the Italian Freemason and eventually the people from the Pentagon. And this is during the Ceausescu time? No, this is okay. after Ceausescu. So this after is- 1989, because before that, it was the Socialist Republic, and uh, I'm assuming that all of this is just KGB-style hidden secrets, right? Uh, it would be even more obscure than KGB. You know, I mean, it was that secret. But yeah, and and so, any case, in any case, um, they opened the chamber in 2003. Ironically, during that August time period that I've been talking about, oh. that's when they breached the chamber. I don't know on what date, but we we're all waiting for something to happen in August 2003 because that was the 20-year anniversary of the Montauk Project. And lo and behold, something did happen. There was a big blackout in New York. Uh, And the center of the blackout was Preston Nichols' new property in Cairo, New York. It was the center of the, uh, and and it was on August 14th during the biorhythm. Al Bielik had predicted it on Coast to Coast Radio. And that was a big happening, but what happening was in Romania was even bigger. So, they opened and they were able to access a chamber. And the whole book is about the drama and the politics betimes getting to the chamber. And we do get to visit the chamber at the uh, end of the book. And basically, there are huge tables in uh, like for giants, people that would be like nine feet high. And if you put your hand over the table, the modern type of a table, probably look like a computer screen to some extent. I forget the exact description, but you put your hand over the table and it would read out uh, your what was inside of your hand, like the molecules. If you put it closer, it would read out the atoms. Uh, and it could, I guess, go to the quantum level if you went even deeper. There were other tables where if you put your hand over it, it would show you a star system. This is in holo- 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 holography. It show you a star system with a life form. And this is the the star system or planet that the life form came from. If you put your hand over another one and kept your hand on the other one, you get a different life form, a different star system, plus a hologram of a hybridization between the two life forms. So this was a, what I call a virtual Noah's Ark. Did you see this yourself? Much more extensive. Pardon? Did you see this yourself? No. No, I have not. Okay. Although the author has said he would do everything he could uh, to someday enable me to see these things. Uh, maybe he will. Um, so far, no. But um, certainly, I felt like I've been drawn closer to understanding what he's talking about. But um, when you would go a little bit deeper into the chamber, there was something called the projection hall. And the projection hall was a... Uh, place where you would you would see a holographic readout of the history of the universe and the history of the universe uh, i shouldn't say the universe i mean the earth the history of the earth but it was bioresonant 
So if you were to sit down, you might see a different history than I would see. Uh, they, they wouldn't necessarily contradict each other, but you might see something that was more tailored to where what your DNA line had experienced. Um, you know, just like if you took a person who, you know, grew up in the Orient uh, and was Oriental, you might have a different uh, series of experiences than somebody who grew up in the West. And an American Indian might have something completely different. They might all complement each other in certain things, though. So that was an amazing discovery. The author did get to see it. And he also, um, uh, there are three tunnels in the projection hall that go into the inner earth. One would go to Egypt. One would go to Tibet via Baghdad with an offshoot to, to Baghdad and Mongolia. The other one would go into the inner earth itself. Are we talking about caverns here? They're tunnels, but they have an interdimensional aspect to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and these have been covered in subsequent books, like the third book in the series, Mystery of Egypt, the first tunnel. That goes into the first tunnel, which goes to the Giza Plateau. Uh, very, very interesting book with the technology he describes. Peter, are we talking about the Busegi Mountains or this uh, figure this looking like this thing? This is where the chamber is. This the is where the chamber is, Busegi Mountains. Busegi Mountains, yes. Spelled Buchegi to Buchegi, right. B they for those who are Googling it, B-U-C-E-G-I. Yeah, Buchegi Mountains, yeah. What else is there? Because I remember years ago, there was a lot of talk about this region of Romania. Well, that's where this installation is. Uh, I mean, I just met somebody this last summer who um, was introduced to me to tell me of, like, earthquakes that happened up there. This was in the late 90s, but they didn't register on the um, seismograph. But they were they were earthquakes because he was stationed at the big antenna up there, antenna station up there. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a place where, you know, stuff is known to happen. But I don't hear that many stories about it. It's beautiful up there. Very peaceful to be up there. I really like it up there. I'm surprised the United States military hasn't shown an interest in that area, if you know what I mean. Oh, they most definitely have. Oh? They were the ones that helped facilitate the opening of the chamber. And that's in hmm. the book. Because they had the technology to open. It was not easy to get into that chamber. They were using atomic lasers and stuff until finally it got to the point where there was like force fields that they couldn't deal with. And some people got killed and basically... Uh, Cesar Brad, who was the one who uh, was the head of Department Zero, there was a, a handprint there, and he was actually put his hand on the handprint, uh, and the force field kind of opened to them. In other words, it was kind of meant for him to be there, kind of a, a divine moment of synchronicity. And he was meant to open it. That was a lot of fate involved in that um, whole setting up of that situation. But uh, he, so there was a, the book goes into a whole standoff between America and Romania, but this is all done on back channels because the Americans, well, the, the Americans and Romanians became allied right after this. And, and Romania became a part of NATO when it was not a part of interesting. Yeah. So that that's, I mean, the second book, Transylvanian Moonrise starts off with 
with uh, several articles that have been translated from the Romanian because they appeared in the Romanian press corroborating the story. Um, and you talk to people, you can find people that will corroborate the story, but by now the operation has become so sophisticated that they don't even need any sort of obvious presence at the, at the base that would be near the town of Bushteni. Uh, he refers to it as B in the book. Uh, he doesn't name it, but it's obviously Bushteni to anybody who knows the area of Romania. And this area is now camouflaged and it's camouflaged with holographic technology. You wouldn't even, you wouldn't even know where to go. Uh, it's so well hidden because the technology has evolved so much. So you're only go there if you're meant to go there. It's not for curiosity seekers. Um, if you want to penetrate. That. So anybody who's listening to us saying, I want to take a trip to Romania and visit that area of the world, don't try it? It's fine to try, but Romania is very different. It's not like, like for example, I once uh, went there. I was invited to go as the esoteric guide with Jeanette Crowley, very nice woman who's a trans channel. And she had a big group of like 40 people. And I kind of went along and I really didn't do too much on the trip, but I did tell her where to go. And we all had a good time. But there was another woman who came on the trip with us. She was actually a customer on that trip, but she was a professional tour guide. And she said during the trip, she says, you know, you should come back here. We, we have to come back here and you should be giving talks here. So she actually organized a trip the following year. And she'd done trips all over the world. And she had the hardest time uh, dealing with Romanian travel agencies, doing getting answers. Uh, through my own personal contacts, I was able to, to find somebody who could help her. And even then, she wasn't getting answers to her questions. It all worked out, but it drove her nuts. It was not like organizing any other tour because the cultures, not only the cultures, but the energies are so different. Um, now, that's not to say you couldn't sign up and go go there. And people go there all the time. But when you start to go into the penetrate the mysteries um, that I've written about, it's uh, it's an adventure because, you know, I, I go to sacred Romania. And I've managed to have great success going to sacred Romania. But there's sort of a, you will, your stuff will come up. It's a, you know, like say, I went there a couple summers ago with six of my friends, all good friends. And they all ended up fighting with each other. <laughs> Not everyone was fighting with everyone. But the upshot of that was last year I went, I, I went back by myself. And I was able to, you know, in other words, we had a group of six people and, and the shit literally hit the fan with so many. I won't go into it, but it was just so bizarre. Um, well, when you think was, of Romania, I mean, a lot of people think of Transylvania, Dracula and, and so on. Well, yes. And Dracula uh, did a great service to that country on two levels. One, he protected them. And this is why he's a national hero is he protected them from the Turks who were enslaving 
But wasn't, wasn't Dracula Vlad the Impaler? Vlad the Impaler, yeah. More popularly known as Dracula. Right. Um, Vlad Tepish, as he's known as in Romania, which means Vlad the Impaler. Uh, but yeah, he, he, he protected the people by, you know, killing the Turks and driving them out. What he also did that is less known and appreciated even by the Romanians is that he protected the sacred area of Transylvania, which was not, although he was born in Transylvania, he really wasn't from Transylvania. He was from Wallachia, Wallachia the Prince of Wallachia, which is the sort of the farm belt of Romania. And he was a very um, instrumental in protecting that area of Transylvania from, for the, the Hungarians um, who were then occupying it. So, but, and he also protects them on a third level is that when people come to Romania, they gravitate towards Braun Castle, known as Dracula's Castle, and it distracts people from going to the more sacred or more interesting places. Braun Castle is, is, was never Dracula's Castle. There is a possibility that he might have stayed there for a few days or a couple of weeks, but it's, it's, it's a complete tourist invention. You mentioned giants, and this is something that we discuss here all the time, live foot giants. A lot of the monuments built around the world, if you look at them, they probably built the steps, uh, Baalbek, the pyramids. Could they have been the builders of these megalithic structures that we see around the world? Um, obviously, they might have done something. According to the, the latest book that I'm currently translating and editing, Forgotten Genesis by Radu Cinemar, it will be the sixth book in, in, in the Transylvania series. Is uh, No, it would not be. The, they didn't build the, uh, um, the pyramids. Uh, but, um, who knows what, what they might've built. I mean, obviously those structures inside were built for taller people, but there's a whole hidden history about giants. That's been, uh, sequestered people for, for decades. I know David Childress published some books on it, at least one about giants. It was a very popular topic. Let me go back to the giants for a moment, but you, you said, no, it was not built by the giants. Does that mean that? you have information as to who built the Egyptian pyramids? Well, the, according to the uh, Radu Cinemar, and I just finished with the chapter, um, they were built by uh, extraterrestrials who had very advanced technology where they could extract stones from a quarry. He shows where the quarry is in the book. They lifted it out. They put it. It was like all sort of design. You've heard how Tesla could design in his mind. Mm-hmm. Well, they sort of could design in the etheric plane and they could design things and everything would be precisely, you know, cut and, you know, based off of a blueprint in the etheric design and it would all be put together. And these were set up to be serve as transmitters. Almost like a 3D uh, printer in a way, conceptually. Oh, in, in it, that's, a, that's a loose analogy. That's OK. Uh, yeah. And, and basically they were doing this because there was a rupture in um, ancient Atlantis between the etheric plane and the physical plane. There used to be a lot more concourse between the two worlds, the etheric plane and the physical plane. And when Atlantis was destroyed as a culture, as a civilization, there was an accompanying rift in the dimensions. And what was left behind in Atlantis, from Atlantis, like say, for example, Egypt, 
uh, was sort of a a remnant reference point, transmitter point between the two worlds to, you know, to not forget, you know, the ancient knowledge and, and knowledge was deposited in certain places, you know, uh, sometimes referred to by George Hunt Williamson as the sacred places of the lion, whether it be in Peru or or Egypt or wherever else. And that's what the pyramids were. They were just sort of a, you know, it's like, uh, you know, loosely sort of like buried treasure, but it wasn't treasure in a, you know, money sense. It was treasure in, in the terms of wisdom and remembering and all, all this sort of thing. And that the people that were left to live amongst it were the more evolved primate beings, as opposed to what he calls light beings, uh, different types of DNA. People that, and, and, and the DNA of the primates was more um, structured to survive, and it had more, I guess, variations, more potential than, say, a light body DNA, which was limited. Um, in terms of its experience and exper variational experience or experience of variation. Um, so that's just what he says. I, uh, it's not my theory. It's, it's, it's his experience from watching holograms that were, um, you know, in tune with his own intuition. What about the purpose of the pyramid? It was people like Graham Hancock talks, they talk about the, all of a sudden, so you get these pyramids pop up almost at the same time all over the world. What was the purpose of these pyramids? Not only Egypt, but all of Mesoamerica, even in in Angkor Wat. They are they are basically a transmitter and conduit between the two the, between the two worlds. That's it's that simple. And I could even tell you when you get um, Alistair Crowley talked about crossing the abyss. And when you cross the abyss, you reach the city of the pyramids. The city of the pyramids, I can completely relate to the practice of Qigong, where you have pyramids. Your body is built on a structure of pyramids. Um, of course, the, the most basic part of life is the tetrahedron. You know, that, that goes down to the, you know, the level, the lowest level is, is that we're built. That's why the life is tetra. It's built on the tetrahedron. But in, in a more functional aspect, like say in Qigong or the martial arts, you have the area of the groin, which is an upside down pyramid called the qua. And above that, you have a right side up pyramid that goes up to the solar plexus near the rib cage. Then you have another upper qua or middle qua that goes from the solar plexus to the shoulders, kind of comes across the clavicle. And then above that, you have an upright pyramid, which goes over your head. And that's what, why, that's why the, the pharaohs, you see, have that sort of pharaonic headdress, which is like a pyramid. And then above that, above the head, above the crown, you have the uh, another upside down pyramid, the upper qua. And that's where you're energy is coming from the celestial realm. Like a Merkaba? So, no, Merkaba is different. But this is, these are a series of pyramids that are within the etheric structure of the human body. 
And a Qigong practitioner who's very evolved will have energy flowing through these pyramids. You're also, your, your motions are in concert with these pyramids in the sense that you balance your energy field. These pyramids are going to be a part of it. Even to the point when you're standing, you can work out kinks in your system, both anatomically and energetically. This is the city of the pyramids. Uh, that Crowley talks about, not necessarily recognized by Crowley, but in other words, you're, you're, you're having a balance between the, the earthly realm and the celestial realm. And that's all it, that's all really it comes down to. A pyramid is a basic dynamic function of life. So when you have these pyramids across the world, they are representative of another of a conduit to another dimension that's what they're and that's why they fascinate the hell out of people and there was a lot more thought than i'm giving here into the great pyramid i mean that that's thought out you have 32 chambers within the great pyramid and the, the masonic levels of 32 are based upon those pyramid those chambers so it's like it's it's and you know, the Masons are still a uh, a government of the earth, a hidden government of the earth. So, you know, it's like a connection. A lot of it's buried in secret. Obviously, after you get to the 33rd, 33rd degree or beyond, and you have to be deputized by somebody up there, that is what well, the that, real knowledge is. That's nice to think that, but it's 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 not quite that way. That's like becoming president of the United States and thinking you're in charge of the country. Right. You're not. Uh, you have a role to play. And but, you know, it's kind of like there's a lot of stuff going on that is completely out of your control. So when somebody gets themselves to the 33rd, 32nd, 30th level, they may not they may be handed a, a bill of false goods. Because the people handing him the bill of goods may not think he's worthy, you know. In other words, there's so much chicanery and shenanigans. You have to remember that the word shaman and the word sham are very closely related. It's not that shamans are shams, but there's enough trickery that's done in the name of shamanism where it got that name of a, it's a sham. And either the shaman or the sham they both control the population in a way. But we have to take our one and only intermission. But before we do, and I'll give you some time to give your coordinates and websites and so on. Let me just say this about Dr. David Anderson. This is a little bit synchronistic in a way. Because when I started this program, somebody came to me with some pictures that, again, of folks I've told you for 12 years that I cannot share because of what happened to the person who, who actually took those images but they deal with time travel. And this is why I always wanted to talk to David Anderson because a couple of days after I got those pictures is when serendipis, it was serendipity. I got a, an email and it said, it's good to be connected with you. Wishing you all the best. Sincerely, your friend in time, Dr. David Lewis Anderson. And then boom, he disappeared. But one day in the future, I'll be able to share those pictures. I just haven't been authorized to do so. And maybe one day if I meet with you, I'll share them with you, Peter. But tell us, how can people buy your books, 
Learn more about your work in your website and so on. And when we come back, folks, a lot more. Okay, you can go to the website, skybooksusa.com, skybooksusa.com. You can also get my books on Kindle, Amazon, Nook, iTunes, and uh, in bookstores if if they carry them. And, and of course, um, also visit the Time Travel Education Center where you can see seven free videos explaining the science and math of time travel and showing that it doesn't violate the laws of math and physics at an eighth grade level. And folks, when we come back, we have a lot more. We're going to go back to the Montauk Project because we only discovered a fraction. I want to ask Peter if there's a patent application out there for a time reactor. And if so, where is it? And what country or countries, if any, is currently working on time travel and have they succeeded? All of this and much more when we return. This is Mel Fabregas. My special guest today is Peter Boone. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, click on like, subscribe, and share. Thank you. 